Well, the minor prophets, somebody came up last night and said, Pastor PJ, why are they called the minor prophets? Are you going to explain that? And so I said, sure. And he sat there and he had bated breath. He was waiting for this profound answer to the question. But the reality is, is they're minor prophets because they're shorter than the major prophets. They're smaller than the major prophets. And so even the longest of the minor prophets gets up to 12, 13, 14 chapters. But when you consider the three major prophets, which what are the three major prophets? You've got Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, and you've got Ezekiel. When you consider the length of those books compared to the length of certainly Habakkuk, which is only three chapters, or Jonah, which we'll study next week, which is only three chapters, and even the, all the way up to, to 14 chapters, they are minor in comparison. So it's not that their message was less important or that uh, they were played with a minor key behind them as they were delivering these messages, and so they were more of a somber tone or anything else. No, it's, it's just that they're shorter books than the major prophets. But this morning we're looking at Habakkuk, and Habakkuk may be a book that you're somewhat familiar with, maybe a little bit less familiar. It's, it's my favorite of the minor prophets, which is why we're leading off with it uh, in this series. There's no rhyme or reason or order outside of that. It's just that I like this book. It's one of my favorites, and it's one of my favorites because Habakkuk's a book for the unexpected in life. Those times in our lives where we can't understand what the Lord is doing. Those times in our lives where we are tempted to question God, tempted to grumble against God, tempted to complain about our circumstances, tempted to uh, put our fist in the air and say, God, do you really know what you're doing? And there was certainly that moment for me, and, and I would say probably for us as, as pastors, uh, uh, not even a, a year ago, October 30th of this past year, while we were on our pastor's retreat, the night before we had had dinner together. We had had a great time meeting together and praying together and fellowship together. And we went to sleep. We got up the next morning. We went to breakfast. And then we went in and sat down to go about the rest of our pastor's meeting. We spent another hour, hour and a half in prayer. And then Pastor West got up and went to the restroom and never came back. 34 years old, former Marine, former SWAT officer, perfect health from what we could tell, from what we understood. And he was gone in an instant. And he had been here for six months and not only that, but he was the father to two young children and the husband to a young wife and a young bride. And as pastors, we were left there in the wake of this wondering, okay, God, what are you doing right now? Why are you doing this right now? God, this was not our plan. This was not what we define as good. This is wrong. This is bad. This makes no sense. God, do you know what you're doing right now? And when we come to times like that in life, it's good for us to come to a book like Habakkuk. Because in a book like Habakkuk, we're reminded of God's sovereignty. We're reminded of God's control. We're reminded that so many times in our lives, the call on us as the, the children of God, as the followers of God, is to be patient and to wait and to trust that he is sovereign and that he is good and that he is unchanging and that he knows exactly what he is doing, not just some of the time, but all of the time. And when we see that God through the pages of the book of Habakkuk, it gives us that encouragement. It gives us that comfort. It gives us that confidence so that when we're walking through the valley, when we're walking through the trial, when we're in the dark periods of our lives where we're tempted to grumble and complain and question, we can be reminded, no, God knows what he's doing. And God is doing everything according to his perfect plan. Habakkuk, as a prophet, when we think about him, uh, we have to realize that nobody really knows, number one, what he looked like, because all three of these men are supposed to be Habakkuk. 
You see the guy there on your right, he's got an afro. The guy in the middle looks like a, a character from the Lord of the Rings, and the guy on the left looks like some Greek Adonis over there. So uh, we have no clue what Habakkuk looked like, but here's some of the stuff that we do know at least about the book. Uh, number one and number two there, because they both came up, uh, it was written sometime prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 605 B.C., and we know this because the clearest time marker that we have in this book is the reference to the fact that God was going to raise up the Chaldeans, raise up the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, under the charge of Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll remember back from even the book of Daniel, they're the ones that came and sacked Jerusalem and carried away the exiles in 605 BC. So that leads us to conclude that the book of Habakkuk was most likely written during the end of King Josiah's reign in the southern tribes of Judah, uh, somewhere between 615, 612 BC are some of the best uh, and and, uh, and most, most specific time frames that we can find. Um, outside of that, there's no solid, uh, clear time marker. But another thing that we know here about the book of Habakkuk, it was written during a time of incredibly extreme wickedness in uh, the, the period of, of Israel, in the period of, of the southern tribes as well. This was a time when people were worshiping Baal, when they were worshiping Molech, when they were sacrificing even animals to the God of the sun. And then after they were doing all that, they were coming into the temple and they were pretending to still worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah indicts the people about this specific problem. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he's a contemporary of Habakkuk, writing here in verses 8 through 11. Jeremiah says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations." Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And so there in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, we get a picture of what's going on in Judah right now. We get a picture of the wickedness that is running rampant through the people of Israel right now and the problem that leads Habakkuk to this opening of the book there where he begins to cry out and he says to the Lord, he says, Lord, what are you doing is essentially Habakkuk's cry. Pick up there in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's cry is, is almost one of agony. He's looking around, he's seeing all of these things, and in his perception, in his eyes, God is not doing anything. God, this isn't right. You should act. You should intervene. You should change things. You should put an end to all of this wickedness in front of you. I'm looking at it, and I'm offended. God, how are you not offended? Why do you sit, he uses this word, idly, by and do nothing. See, Habakkuk's forgotten that he's not the sovereign over this world, that God is the sovereign over this world. And Habakkuk is looking around at his circumstances and he's saying, God, there's a problem here. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, this is a chapter where God runs through the laws of justice. 
how people should be treated, what are the right things according to what is just and right and good and true. And so Habakkuk knew those laws and he looked around at what was going on all around him and he said, there's no more justice. He said the law in verse four is paralyzed, it's useless, it's worthless, it's not doing any good anymore, God. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice, if it does go forth, it goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's done, he's frustrated, he's, he's angry with the Lord. He's saying, God, do something. You need to act. He's informing God of what God needs to do. Again, Habakkuk is playing the role of the sovereign rather than the role of the subject. It's something that we can be tempted to do as well, and it's point number one for us tonight, and it's this, we need, or this morning. It's we need to humbly acknowledge God's sovereignty. We need to humbly acknowledge God's sovereignty, not just during the good times, but also, and especially, I would say, during the trials, during the bad times. That was something Habakkuk wasn't doing. I know for myself, I've experienced this lesson very clearly in my life because there have been so many times where my plans have fallen through in favor of God's plans. And ultimately, God's plans have always been better, but there have been times that I've looked at at God and said, God, what are you doing? And I've presumed to be the sovereign in my life rather than trusting that God is the sovereign over my life. Started for me right after high school when I had these plans to go to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was there for two weeks, and God broke me, and I ended up back at home for a semester before I ended up out at the Master's College. Those weren't my plans, but they were his plans. And then after graduating from master's and getting married, I went to work at this church in, outside of San Antonio, Texas. And my thought was we would be there for a while and, and plug in there and settle down there. But those plans weren't God's plans. And we ended up moving up to Dallas a year later so that I could pursue more education. We were in Dallas for four years and I thought I would get a job at a church in Texas. But then God's plans had us in Missouri three years later, four years later. Never would have imagined being in Missouri. In fact, I tried to avoid Missouri even... <laughs> Afterwards, I ignored the the church's call three times before my wife finally said, you know what, maybe you should respond to that call. And so I did, and God led us to Missouri. And then we were in Missouri for three years, and then after that, I went to Arizona to take a job at a church as an interim pastor to then transition into the lead pastor position. Those were my plans, but those weren't God's plans, at least not fully. And he made that abundantly clear, and now we're here, and we couldn't be happier to be here. But all the while, looking back over all of those things, there were so many times where I was a lousy sovereign over my life. And I was thankful that God was ultimately sovereign. Habakkuk is looking around, and he's accusing God of being a lousy sovereign over things. And God responds to him in verse 5. God speaks and says, look, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told but I'm going to tell you anyways, Habakkuk. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own, the the power of this nation. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice goes forth. Their dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They leave devastation everywhere they go. They all come for violence, their faces forward. 
They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, their brutality and their arrogance. For they pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God, their godlessness. Their God is their own strength, their own might, their own arrogance, their own pride. So Habakkuk says, God, why don't you do something? And God responds and says, oh, Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They are going to be my instrument of justice and righteousness to bring punishment upon the people of Judah and the people of Israel. It's one of those moments in life when your life takes a left turn that you weren't expecting. This is one of those moments for Habakkuk, and and we've all been there as well, where our mouths are just left agape when we find out what's actually going on versus what our plans were. When our definition of what is good flies right in the face of what God's definition of what is good for us, and those two don't line up at all, and we're left wondering to ourselves even more so now, okay, God, what are you doing? We need to remember verses at that time like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We can get there. We can all say amen to that, right? Yes, I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. But then he's not done there. He says, and do not lean on your own understanding. See, so often we want to say, okay, God, I'll trust you with all my heart as long as I can understand what you're doing. But Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Even when you can't understand what God is doing, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. See, we need to embrace this humility before our sovereign God when things don't go according to our plans. Because what it reveals when we grumble about our circumstances, or even when we fantasize about how we would like our life to be, if only my life was this way, if only this had worked out differently, oh, what would things be like if we had not made that decision or that purchase or if I had not taken this job or had taken that job, what would life be like then? When we're doing that, really what we're doing is we're looking at the Lord and saying, God, I'm I'm a better sovereign over my life than you are. This is a lesson that Habakkuk had to learn and it took him still a little bit longer. Look at verse 12. Habakkuk responds to God's news that he's going to bring the, the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, for judgment. And Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting? In other words, are you not immutable? You're unchangeable. You're the God who's always been and always will be. You are unchanging, O Lord my God, my Holy One. We're not going to die Habakkuk saying to himself, I know the Chaldeans, I know the reputation, that they wipe out everything in their path. But God, I also know Leviticus 26. Even if you're going to bring judgment upon us, you promised us, God, in Leviticus 26, verses 44 through 45, that you would not completely wipe us out. We're not going to die. In other words, you're not going to use this nation. Oh Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment? And you, oh rock, have established them for reproof? Hear the incredulity in in his voice as he's writing this, as he's saying this. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you, here's that word again, idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, Habakkuk's saying, okay, we're bad, God, but we're not as bad as they are. 
And you can't use somebody more wicked than we are to bring judgment upon us. That flies in the face of your character. You're good, God. You're holy, God. You're righteous, God. You, God, you don't know what you're doing. Verse 14, you, Lord, make mankind like the fish of the sea. You're the creator, like crawling things that have no ruler. You're the, the one who's created all things. Verse 15, he, the ruthless man, God, these Babylonians, they bring up mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. He has this, this idea, God, that he's in control, not you. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. God, he worships himself and his own abilities. He sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to bless the wicked this way? By using them to judge us? God, you can't do that. God, you need to go back to the drawing board, is what Habakkuk is saying. And then verse 1 of chapter 2. <laughs> I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. Again, Habakkuk needed to learn this lesson that God's sovereignty trumped his sovereignty. That he was a subject and God was the sovereign. And what Habakkuk's grumbling about and what Habakkuk's complaining about, he's looking at the Lord and he's saying, God, you clearly don't understand what you're doing here. God, let me remind you of your character, that you're holy, that your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. God, let me remind you of the Babylonians in case you hadn't been up to speed with who they are and what they were doing. God, let me bring you up to speed on things because clearly you're behind on all of this. And then he arrogantly and proudfully says, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and see, God, what are you going to say to me? And then while I'm standing there, I'm going to think about what I'll say back to you. The brashness. It's uncomfortable to read. But yet at the same time, we've been there ourselves. Maybe not as boldly as this, but once again, when we grumble against what God has done in our lives, when we challenge what he's done, when we are not leaning on his understanding and not our own understanding, when we're not trusting the Lord with our, all our heart, we are in effect doing what Habakkuk is doing here. When we are not content with trusting in the Lord, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I know better than you do. Not only are we challenging his sovereignty, but we're challenging his wisdom. We're saying to the Lord, God, I, I, I know what's, what's good for me better than you know what's good for me. And that's what Habakkuk was doing here. He was saying, God, you can't do this. This isn't right. This isn't what's good for Israel. Remember who you are. Remember who these people are. God, you clearly, maybe you need some sleep, Lord. You don't seem to be on your A game. Point number two for us this morning is this. Humbly admit that God knows better. Humbly admit that God knows better. Again, I, I think we can get there on a macro level pretty quickly. 
thinking of the results of the last election, before going into that election day, I think a lot of people uh, in evangelical circles, at least, were sitting back and saying, okay, Lord, uh, regardless of the outcome of this election, we know that you're in control, that you're sovereign, that you're good, that you know what's going on, and we're going to trust in your plans, right? On that macro level, we can get there. But I think this is so much harder for us on the micro level. When it gets it down into the, the, the nitty-gritty of our own lives, when you've lost your job, are you willing to say, okay, God, you know what's better in this instance? When you've got a, a conflict with your wife, are you willing to say, okay, God, you know what's better in this circumstance? When you've got wayward children, are you willing to say, okay, God, you know what's better, and I'm going to trust in your plan during this time? When you get a diagnosis of cancer, are you willing to say, okay, God, you, you know what's better? When we lose a, a friend, a brother, a fellow pastor, are we willing to say at that point in time, okay, God, you know what's better? It's hard. It's incredibly hard. Yet it's incredibly important that we get there. Because he does know what's better for us. And everything he does is towards that end. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for what? Good for those who love him. Our problem is we want to be the ones that define good. But in reality, God has already defined good in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined that we would be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of Christ. And so when we think about everything that God does in our lives, all things happen and work together for our good, we need to understand and hold on and cling to the reality that our good is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And sometimes that is a very abrasive process in our lives. If you think about Michelangelo, who took a block of marble that had twice over been rejected, by two other artists way more experienced than he was at this point in time in his career. Twice it had been commissioned to be carved and turned into a statue, and twice the, the artist had said, I can't do anything with this. It's, it's too malformed. It's never going to be anything worthwhile. And it sat in a, in a courtyard, in, a, in a, a side yard of this building for years until finally Michelangelo came and said, I'll, I'll do it. And they brought out this rejected, this malformed, this ugly piece of marble and they put it before Michelangelo who was able to see David even within this block of marble. But think about the process that Michelangelo went through to get David out of that marble. It was violent at times. It was aggressive. Way before he got into taking the fine sandpaper and, and, and smoothing out some of the last remaining rough edges, there was a lot of violent chisel and hammer to stone taking place. And there are times in our lives as believers, as God is conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, that there are going to be hammer and chisel and stone moments for us. 
And those are the times that we're going to want to push back like Habakkuk does and say, God, you don't know what you're doing right now. I know better than you. I know what's good for my family. I know what's good for my marriage. I know what's good for my health. I know what's good for for me, God. You don't right now. Those are those times we're going to be tempted to, to say that to the Lord. And those are the times that we have to humble ourselves under the Lord, trust in him with all our heart, and not lean on our own understanding but to remember that he is working all things together for our good, that he does know better. The Lord responded to Habakkuk, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Notice that even here Habakkuk is being reminded of God's sovereignty, of God's control. The vision awaits its appointed time. Appointed by who? By God. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, Habakkuk, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Does that verse sound familiar to you? Romans 1, right? The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk, I know it doesn't make sense to you. Habakkuk, I know you would rather be the sovereign and not the subject. Habakkuk, I know that you think you know better than me, but Habakkuk, I'm going to remind you that your call is to live by faith. When you can't see the outcome, when you don't know why, when it's uncomfortable, when it hurts, when it's frustrating, when it's confusing, Habakkuk, Live by faith. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these, all who? All the nations and all the peoples, Habakkuk, are going to take up their taunt against him. Against who? Against Babylon. Against the Chaldeans with scoffing and riddles for him and say. And so in other words, God is reminding Habakkuk, Habakkuk, listen, yes, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, but that doesn't mean that I'm okay with the Chaldeans. Habakkuk, you need to understand that I've got a plan that you are not privy to. And my plan is, is, exists outside of the, the bounds of, of time. If it seems slow to you, Habakkuk, wait for it. My justice will come. My justice will come against all people, including the Babylonians. Yes, he, they are an arrogant people, Habakkuk. Yes, they are, are drunkards. Yes, they are violent. Yes, they are insatiable with their, their craving for more and more and, and their craving for more power and their devastation of people. Yes, Habakkuk, all that is true. But Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a glimpse into what I'm going to do because eventually all the nations and all the peoples, Habakkuk, are going to stand together and taunt Babylon. And here's what they're going to say. And he goes through all of these woes. And this word woe is a cursing. It's a damnation that he issues against the the people of, of Babylon. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you stumble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. 
for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And so all of these cursings, but I want to call your attention to verse 14 because this is the climax of God's judgment against not just the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, but against all of the nations. This is what we are hopeful for even still today as we look around at our world and see things that sometimes seem like they're spinning out of control. Because verse 14, God says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As powerful Habakkuk as the Babylonians seem, as far-reaching as their reign of terror may be, there's going to be something coming one day that's going to be even more far-reaching than that, more all-encompassing than that, and that is this, that the whole world, the whole earth will know the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Verse 16, the continuation of the judgment against Babylon, the cup in the Lord's right hand, the cup of wrath, will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For as the man of violence to the earth, to the cities, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and those who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, these gods that they trust in Habakkuk, what profits, what does it profit them? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all in it. And here's the contrast. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So you've got these woes. You've got these judgments. Basically, God looking at Habakkuk during this time and echoing the the sentiment of Isaiah 55, 9. Habakkuk, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Leading Habakkuk to come to the conclusion of Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how inscrutable are his ways. God, forgive me, for I have been trying to search out your ways. I have been trying to put you under the lamp of scrutiny and to judge what you are doing, and that's not my position. That's what God has been showing Habakkuk through unfolding all of these judgments against Babylon and saying to him, look, you don't understand what you are talking about, Habakkuk. It's not me who doesn't understand. It's you who doesn't understand. And verse 20 is so encouraging. And it's encouraging for us as well as we look around and and sometimes we look at this world and we say, God, do you really know what's better? We look at the chaos, we look at the turmoil, we look at the political scene, we look at the world scene uh, just as far as terrorism and everything else that's going on and we say, God, are are you really there? do Do you really know what's going on right now? Verse 20 is something that we need to keep in mind, but the Lord is, the Lord is in his holy temple. Right now, he is in his holy temple. These false idols can't do anything, but God is the one who rules over all. He is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Habakkuk responds in chapter three, and I can't help but think of the book of Job. You remember after God has responded to Job and put Job in his place. Similarly, what does Job say? He says, I'm gonna place my hand over my mouth and keep silent. 
Habakkuk doesn't do that, but his response is nonetheless appropriate to the Lord. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk gets it. He understands now. He's been put in his place, and he gets and he understands, and it's clear to him now that God is the sovereign, that God knows better, that God is in control, that God is ruling, and he's understanding what is coming is going to come, and he has no power to change that. And so he issues this prayer of the righteous who live by faith when he says to the Lord, Lord, I simply ask this, in your wrath, remember mercy. And then he goes on and he recounts the Lord's kindness and faithfulness to Israel over the years. Beginning in verse 3, God came from Taman and, from, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those are locations in Sinai. And so as he goes through this, there's allusions to what God has done through the, the deliverance of Israel through the Exodus. There's allusions to what God has done through delivering his people through his rulers and his kings. Even later on in verse 11 when it says, The sun and the moon stood still in their place. Does that sound familiar to you? Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But pick up in verse 12. After Habakkuk has gone through and and recounted all these ways that God has delivered his people and been faithful to his people Israel, he's saying, Lord, in this way, in your wrath, remember mercy, just as you have through the Exodus, just as you have through delivering us, just as you have through preserving us, just as you have through fighting on our behalf for us. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out, Lord, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That word anointed should grab our attention. When we see the word anointed, we, we think of Christ. Christ is the, the, from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. The Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. And so here, as, as we're reading this, did Habakkuk have Jesus in mind? No, not necessarily, but can we see how Jesus is, is alluded to here nonetheless? Yes. Who did Habakkuk have in mind? I think this is Moses as he's recounting everything else going through, through the Exodus and through delivering the people of Israel. He's saying, God, you were out for the salvation, for the deliverance of your people, the deliverance of your people as you worked with Moses, as you worked with your anointed one, your ruler that you put in place. But today we sit here this morning and we think of a future deliverance, right? That Habakkuk didn't know about. We think of the cross that we now realize. And we think about how God has worked salvation for his people. The salvation, it says of, but it could also be rendered with your anointed. God, you worked for salvation with your anointed one, with the true Mashiach, with the the, the true Christos, with Jesus. And so just like Habakkuk has looked back over the faithfulness of God, you and I can look back over the faithfulness of God in our lives and we can start at the cross. And remember how God has been kind to us so that when we're in the valley, when we're tempted to say, God, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? We can look back and remember how many times he has been true and faithful and right to us and good to us and bring and draw encouragement from that. It's point number three for us this morning. It's this, humbly remember God's past kindness. Humbly remember God's past kindness. My twins, who are two, they have a little bit of a short-term memory problem in the mornings. 
they think every morning that we're not going to get them out of their cribs. And so rather than waiting patiently in their cribs like any good two-year-old toddler should do, right? They stand up and they scream at us. And they alternate between mama and dada until one of us comes in there to get them out of their crib. And that usually starts around 6.15. See, they don't remember our past acts of kindness to them in going in every morning and getting them out of their crib. Same thing happens with time for diaper change. Every time, every morning, it catches them off guard that their diaper needs to be changed. But they don't remember the past acts of kindness in giving them a a clean set of drawers to go about the, the next hour in before they need another one, right? Or breakfast time. They forget the past acts of kindness in us feeding them every day. And they panic and they start clambering for their seats and asking, eat, 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 like the, the birds from Finding Nemo, right? And they chirp at us until we put them in their seats because they're failing to remember God's past, not God's, uh, my, our past acts of kindness in giving them breakfast in the morning. That's us sometimes, though, guys, with God. We, we have that short-term memory problem. Life takes that left turn that we're not expecting, and we begin to clamor, and we begin to complain, and we begin to chirp, and we begin to cry out and say, God, what are you doing? And that's why it's so good for us to remember his past kindness in our lives, his faithfulness to us. Maybe it's that time that you went through a, a tough time financially and God delivered from you, you from that in the past by providing for you. And now you're in another tight spot and you need to remember that. You need to remember that and then embrace that mindset that God called Habakkuk to and that is that the righteous needs to live by faith. Not blind faith, but faith in the God who has been good to you in the past and will continue to be good to you moving forward because he is unchangeable. He is immutable. Or maybe it's the, uh, the rough spot in your marriage years ago that God was faithful to bring you and your wife through. And now you're at a place in, in your marriage again where there's conflict, where there's, uh, there's differences that you look at and you say, I don't know if we're going to be able to overcome these. And that's the time that you need to look back at what God has done in your marriage in the past, starting with the fact that he brought the two of you together to begin with and how faithful he's been to to continually bring reconciliation and bring forgiveness and bring healing to your marriage so that in the midst of that conflict that you're going through right now, you can embrace the mindset of Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. Or maybe it's that loved one who's not saved and you're praying for their salvation and it's growing discouraging and you need to remember that God saved you and remember where you were before he saved you and remember how patient he was with you and how it was his exact and perfect timing that was worked out to bring you to salvation and continue to pray, continue to pursue that person that you love that needs to come to faith in Christ. In the meanwhile, embracing the mindset of Habakkuk that the righteous should live by faith. Because God is good and God will bless those who are obedient to him and faithful to him. And God is going to be faithful to us, right? Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. And he's appealing to his confidence and why he can be so confident. And he says, because I know whom I have believed. The key to us when we're thinking about living by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, is not the content of our faith, but the object of our faith. 
that we have faith in God, the God who is faithful to us. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We can hold fast. We can live by faith. We can trust in the Lord with our whole heart and not lean on our own understanding because the God who we trust, the God who we are clinging to, he is faithful first and foremost. And so as he's been good to you in the past, he will continue to be good to you moving forward. But we need to sometimes adjust our definition, as we've already talked about this morning, of what that good really is. At the same time, though, as we close, this isn't just a slap-happy, stupid grin that we put on our face and just pretend that everything's hunky-dory because, well, hey, the righteous should live by faith and all things work together for good, so I can't feel sorrow, I can't feel hurt, I can't feel fear, I can't feel pain. Look at Habakkuk's response in verse 16 to everything that the Lord has said. He says, I hear, God. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk's a realist here. He still understands that what is laying in front of him and the people of God is something that is dreaded and that is fearsome. Such that he says that rottenness ends, enters into his bones, that his legs are shaking beneath him. And some of you have, have been there as you've experienced devastating news brought to you. You've had that thing happen that, that you're left like jello, that you're left without any strength left within you at all. And, and, and you're feeling the full weight of this tragedy. I'm not saying that you pick yourself up and, and put that silly grin on your face and pretend that things are okay when they're not okay. What this book is a call to and why this book is so encouraging is, is because it's a call to adjust our perspective and say, though this hurts right now and I feel that hurt, just like Habakkuk said, I feel that rottenness, yet God, I can trust you. And so I'm going to trust you. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. This is utter devastation. This is walking out of a bomb shelter after the bomb has gone off and there's nothing left. He says, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And that's why this is such an encouraging book. Because in the end, no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in, God is still trustworthy. Because he is still sovereign. Because he does know better. And because as he's been faithful to you in the past, he will continue to be faithful to you as things move forward. Maybe not according to your plan and your definition of what's good, but according to his. And hopefully for us as believers in this room, all of us have at least experienced enough of our lives to understand that God's definition of what is good for us is better than our definition of what is good for us. And so we wait as Habakkuk did. 
Habakkuk was waiting for this judgment from the Chaldeans. He was waiting for justice to be done and God's vindication to come as, as the Chaldeans would ultimately be punished as well. And so he was going to trust. He was going to wait on the Lord. And you and I today are waiting, not for the Chaldeans and not for anything to, to come upon us like that, but we are waiting still for a deliverance, aren't we? And so we live by faith while the same God of chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple, while the same God is still today in his holy temple, and his son Jesus Christ is still today at his right hand, waiting for the day that we wait for, when God says, okay, go back for your bride. And the son gets up and comes back for his bride, the church. Until that day, we embrace the mindset of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you are sovereign and that we are not. We would make horrible sovereigns of our lives. Those of us who have tried understand that as we've gotten ourselves into situations that only by your grace you've gotten us out of. Lord, we are thankful that you do know better, that you are continually working not just some things, but all things together for our good. God, I, I pray that you would increase our faith Increase our ability to, to live by faith. Increase our understanding that you are a God who is faithful. God, strengthen our grip on the confession of our hope for you who promised are faithful. And God, hasten the day when you do come back for your church, your bride. Until that time, God, may we be found as faithful followers of Christ, godly men living in the footsteps of Habakkuk, embracing these mindsets, God, and glorifying you through everything that we do in Christ's name. Amen.